Good afternoon, everyone. Sorry I'm a little bit late today. A few things to do this morning. And we are reading A Study in Scarlet, written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And let's get a little review and let's get started. So we come to the point where um, Holmes and Watson are heading back home from the visit with uh, John Rance, as you know, in chapter four. And come to find out that John Rance had the, the suspect in his hands and let him go. And Watson made the comment, why would he come back? And Holmes said, the ring, the ring, man, the ring. And he said, I'll let you two to one odds, I'll have him very soon. And he was quite thankful to Watson to uh, pushing the issue of going to check this case out because he was at first not even wanting to go near there. So that was good for them. Now, so we're going to head into chapter five and the title of chapter five is called Our Advertisement Brings a Visitor. Our morning's adventures have been too much for my weak health and I was tired out in the afternoon. After Holmes' departure for the concert, I lay down upon the sofa and endeavored to get a couple hours sleep. It was a useless attempt. My mind had been too much excited by all that had occurred, and the strangest fancies and surmises crowded into it. Every time I closed my eyes, I saw before me the distorted, baboon-like countenance of the murdered man. So sinister was the impression which that face produced upon me that I found it difficult to feel anything but gratitude for him who had removed its owner from the world. If ever, if ever human features bespoke vice of the most malignant type, they were certainly those of Enoch J. Drebber of Cleveland. Still, I recognized that justice must be done and that the depravity of the victim was no condonement in the eyes of the law. So Watson is determined to help Holmes get to the bottom of this murder mystery. The more I thought of it, the more extraordinary did my companion's hypothesis that the man had been poisoned appear to be correct. I remember how he had snipped his lips and had no doubt that he detected something which had given rise to the idea. Then, again, if not poison, what had caused the man's death, since there was neither no wound mark, no mark of strangulation, but, on the other hand, whose blood was that that lay so thickly upon the floor? There was no signs of a struggle, nor had the victim had any weapon with which he might have wounded the antagonist. As long as these questions were unsolved, I felt that sleep would be no easy matter. For either myself or for Holmes. His quiet, self-confident manner convinced me that he already formed a theory which explained all the facts, though... What it was, I could not for instant conjecture, so he has no idea what's going through Holmes's head. He was very late in returning, so late that I knew that the concert could not have detained him at all the time. Dinner was on the table before he appeared. It was magnificent, he said as he took a seat. Do you remember that what Darwin says about music? He claims that the power of producing and appreciating it existed among the human race long before the power of speech was arrived at. That's perhaps 
Perhaps that is why we are so indirectly influenced by it. There are vague memories in our souls of those misty centuries when the world was in its childhood. That's rather a broad idea, I remarked. One's idea must be as broad as nature if they are to be interpreted by nature, he answered. If we are to interpret nature. What's the matter, he says. You're not looking quite yourself there. You don't seem right. Has this Brixton Road affair got you upset? To tell the truth, I said it has. I ought to be more case-hardened after my Afghan experiences. I saw my own comrades hacked to pieces at my want without losing my nerve. I can understand there is a mystery about this which stimulates imagination. Where there is no imagination, there is no horror. Have you seen the evening paper? said Sherlock. No, no, I replied. It gives a fairly good account of the fair. It does not mention the fact that when the man was raised up, a woman's wedding, wedding ring fell upon the floor. It's just as well it does not. Why is that, I asked. Well, look at this advertisement, he answered. I had one sent to every paper this morning immediately after the affair. So let's just stop there for a second. So Holmes is saying once they left the uh, crime scene, he went immediately to the, uh, to the newspapers and put an ad in the paper. That's, that's the only time he could have done that. He threw the paper across to me and I glanced at the place indicated. It was the first announcement in the found column. And it read, In Brixton Road, it ran, a plain gold wedding ring found in a roadway between White Hart Tavern and Holland Grove. Apply Dr. Watson, 221B Baker Street, between 8 and 9 this evening. Excuse my using your name, he said. If I use my own, someone would use, some of those dunderheads would recognize it and would want to meddle in the affair. So Holmes, uh, just go ahead and put the Watson's name in the ad so you can keep the cops and, or the Scotland Yard people away from him, I guess. That is all right, I answered. But supposing anyone applies, I have no ring. Oh, yes, you do, he said, handing me one. This will do very well. It is almost a facsimile. And who do you expect will answer this advertisement, I said. Why, the man in a brown coat, our florid friend with square toes. If he does not come himself, he will send an accomplice. Would he not consider it, would he not consider it as too dangerous? Not at all. In my view of the case is correct, and I would have every reason to believe that it is. This man would rather risk anything than lose that ring. According to my notion, he dropped it while stooping over Driver's body. He did not miss it at the time. After leaving the house, he discovered his loss and hurried back, but found the police already in possession. Owning to his own folly and leaving the candle burning, he had pretended to be drunk in order to ally the suspicions which might have been aroused by his appearance at the gate. Now put yourself in these man, this man's place. On thinking the matter over, it must have occurred to him that it was possible that he had lost the ring in the road after leaving the house. What would he do then? He would eagerly look out for the evening paper in hope of seeing it among the articles found. His eye, of course, would light upon this. He would be overjoyed. Why should he fear a trap? There would be no reason in his eyes why the finding of the ring should be connected with the murder. He would come. He will come. You shall see him within the hour. And then I asked, 
Oh, you can leave me to deal with that with him then. Have you any arms? I have my old service revolver and a few cartridges. But you better get it clean and loaded. He will be a desperate man, and though I shall take him unawares, it is as well to be ready for anything, because you never know what could happen. I went to my bedroom and followed his advice. When I returned with the pistol, the table had been cleared, and Holmes was engaged in his favorite occupation of scraping upon his violin. The plot thickens, he said as I entered. I have just had an answer to my American telegram. My view of the case is the correct one. Let's just stop there for a second. I'm going to go back a little bit. Remember back in uh, back in chapter 4, when they went to see uh, John Rance, before they went to his place, Holmes stopped and sent the telegram off. And I made a note. If we could figure out where we send the telegram, and I figured he was going to be sending it to Cleveland, and this proves that the theory is correct. He doesn't say much more about, about the uh, telegram, though. He just said that the view of the case is correct. So he got confirmation from the telegram, the reply from the telegram. And that is it, I asked eagerly. Holmes is kind of just ignoring his constant questions. My fit will be better with, with new strings, he remarked. Put your pistol in your pocket. When the fellow comes, speak to him in an ordinary way. Leave the rest to me. Don't frighten him by looking at him too hard. It is eight o'clock now, I said, glancing at my watch. Yes, he'll probably be here in a few minutes. Open the door slightly. That will do. Now put the key on the inside. Thank you. This is a queer old book I picked up at the stall yesterday. Du jour inter gentis. Published in Latin at Liege and Lowlands in 1642. Charles' head was still firm on his shoulders when this was a little brown back volume was struck off. Who is the printer? Philip de Croy, whoever that might have been. On the flyleaf is very faded ink. It is written William White. I wonder who William White was. Some pragmatical 17th century lawyer, I suppose. His writing has a legal twist about it. Here comes that man, I think, says Sherlock abruptly. As he spoke, there was a sharp ring at the bell. Sherlock Holmes rose softly and moved his chair in the direction of the door. We heard the servant pass along the hall, and a sharp click of the latch as she opened it. Does Dr. Watson live here? asked a clear but rather harsh voice. We could hear the servant's reply, but the door closed and someone began to ascend the stairs. The footfall was an uncertain and shuffling one. A look of surprise passed over the face of my companion as he listened to it. It came slowly along the passage, and then there was a feeble tap on the door. Come in, I cried. At my summons, instead of a man of violence whom we expected, a very old, wrinkled woman hobbled into the apartment. She appeared to be dazzled by the sudden blaze of light, and after dropping a courtesy, she stood blinking at us with her bleared eyes and fumbling in the pocket with nervous, shaky fingers. I glanced at my companion, and his face had assumed such a pitiless expression that it was all I could do to keep my countenance. The old crony drew an evening paper and pointed to our advertisement. It's this, this has what brought me good, here, good gentleman, she said, dropping another courtesy. A gold wedding ring on the Brixton Road. It belongs to my girl Sally. As she was married this time in the twelfth month, which her husband is steward abroad, a union boat, and 
what he'd say if he came home and found her without the ring is more than I can think. He'd be short enough as in the best times, but especially more when he has too much to drink. If it pleases you, she went to the circus last night along with, and it right there, Watson cuts her off. Is that her ring, I asked? Sh uh, showing the, the old woman the ring. The Lord be thanked, cried the old woman. Sally be glad woman this night. That's the ring. And what may your address be, I inquired, taking up a pencil. 13 Duncan Street, Houndsditch. A weary ways from here. The Brixton Road does not lie between any circus and Houndsditch, said Sherlock Holmes sharply. The old woman faced around and looked keenly at him from her little red-rimmed eyes. Red-rimmed eyes. The gentleman asked me for my address, she said. Sally lives at lodgings at 3 Mayfield, Mayfield Place, Peckham. And your name is? My name is Sawyer. Hers is Dennis, which Tom Dennis married her. A smart, clean lad, too, as long as at sea. And no steward in the company more thought of. But when I'm sure, what with the women and what liquor shops, well, you can just take it from there. Here is your ring, Mrs. Sawyer, I interrupted with obedience to sign from my companion. In other words, Hope's looking over there and saying, okay, get on with it, give it to her, give it to her. It clearly belongs to your daughter, and I am glad to be able to restore it to the rightful owner. With many mumbled blessings and hesitations of gratitude, the old crone packed it away in her pocket and shuffled off down the stairs. Sherlock Holmes sprang to his feet the moment she was gone and rushed into his room. He returned a few seconds enveloped in an ulster and a cravat. In other words, he was in an overcoat and a necktie. I'll follow her, he said hurriedly. She must be an accomplice and will lead me to him. Wait up for me. The hall door already slammed behind our visitor before Holmes had descended the stair. Looking through the window, I could see her walking feebly, feebly along the other side while her pursuer dogged her like some, dogged her some little distance behind. Holmes was on the case. Either his old theory is incorrect, I thought to myself, or else he will be led now to the heart of the mystery. There was no need for him to ask me to wait up for him, for I felt that sleep was impossible until I heard the result of this adventure. It was close upon nine when he set out. I had no idea how long he might be, but I sat stolefully, stolidly puffing up my pipe and skipping over the pages of Henry Merger's Via de Bohm. Ten o'clock passed, and I heard footsteps of the maids as they parted off the bed. Eleven, and then more stately tread the landlady passed by my door, bound for sent the same destination. It was close upon twelve, and I heard the sharp sound of his key latch. The instant he entered, I saw his faith that he had not been successful. Amusement and jargon seemed to be struggling for the mystery, for the mastery, until the former suddenly carried the day, and he burst into a hearty laugh. I would have Scarlet Yards know it for the world, he cried, dropping into his chair. I had rubbed them the wrong way so much that they would never have let me hear the end of it. I can't afford to laugh because I know that I'll be, I will be even with them in the long run. What is it then, I asked. Oh, I don't mind telling a story against myself. So I think right here, Holmes is feeling a little bit like a, uh, like he got hoodwinked, you know? Like fooled. And so he's not too happy with himself. And this is why he doesn't want to tell the people at Scotland Yard because they will never let him hear the end of it. 
Oh, I don't mind telling a story against myself. That creature had gone a little way when she began to limp and show every sign of being a foot sore. Presently she came to a halt, and hailed a four-wheeler which was passing. I managed to be close to her so as to hear the address. But I need not have been so anxious, for she sung it out loud enough to be heard on the other side of the street. Drive to 13 Duncan Street, Houndsditch, she cried. This begins to look genuine, I thought, and having seen her safely inside, I perched myself behind her. That's an artwork which every detective should be an expert at. Well, away we rattled, and never drew rein until we reached the street in question. In other words, stopped the carriage. I hopped off before we came to the door and strolled down the street in an easy, lounging way. I saw the cab pull up. The driver jumped down, and I saw him open the door and stand expectantly. But nothing came out, though. When I reached him, he was groping about frantically in the empty cab, and giving vent in the finest assorted collection of oaths that I've ever listened to. In other words, he was cussing up a blue streak. There is no sign or trace of his passenger, and I fear it will be some time before he gets his fare. On inquiring that number 13, I found that the house belonged to a respectable paper hanger named Keswick, and that no one the name either of Sawyer or Dennis had ever been heard of. You don't mean to say, I cried in amazement, that that tottering, feeble old woman was able to get out of the cab while it was in motion without either you or the driver even seeing her? Old women be damned, said Sherlock Holmes sharply. We were the old women to be taken in. It must have been a young man, an active one, too, besides being a, an excellent actor. The getup was absolutely perfect in every aspect. He saw that he was followed and no doubt used this means of giving me the slip. It shows that the man we were after is not as lonely as I imagined he was, but has friends who are ready to risk something for him. Now, doctor, you looking all done up. Take my advice and turn in. It's been a long day. I was certainly feeling very weary, so I obeyed his injunction. I left home seated in front of the smoldering fire, and long into the watches of the night I heard the low, melancholy wailings of his violin, and knew he was still pardoning over the strange problem which he had set himself to unravel. So it seems our, our hero... Got himself into a little bit of a, uh, let's say, a little bit of a situation where he was hoodwinked. And we'll have to say that, uh, obviously, that this young man was definitely a good actor to fool Sherlock Holmes. And I really don't think that he got in the cab at all, but that's my own opinion. And so it just sheds more light on the mystery that whoever got the ring was probably the one who committed the murder, maybe, or an accomplice to the one who committed the murder. And there is one little drawing here in the book that shows uh, the title of the drawing is A Very Old Woman Hobbled Into the Apartment. And it shows uh, Holmes in the back watching her come to the chair and Watson's pulling up a chair for her to sit down. She's dressed in an old woman's outfit with a dress and apron and Looks very feeble. She does have a face of a man, though. No? So we're going to leave it sit right there. Holmes got hoodwinked. We could say that much. And we'll see what carries on to the next day. This, this night is now coming to an end. It was the first day of the case. And quite a bit happened in that 24 hours. Let's just say that.
So thank you for enjoying the podcast. And if you guys don't mind, if anybody wants to share it, go ahead. I know I'm not the perfect reader in the world. Please bear with me. I'm trying to improve. It's a work in progress. But I really enjoy doing this for everyone. And I hope you enjoy hearing it. And like I said, please spread the word if you want. I'm ready for all kinds of criticism. No problem. Have yourselves a great rest of the weekend. And see you next Sunday. Bye for now.